0: Uh, yesterday marked the official end of Christmastide, you know, the 12 days of Christmas. And so today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. And so we are going to return to our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, which we began last September. And we are in a section of Hebrews that is dwelling deeply upon the cross of Christ. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. There is nothing lighthearted or easy about this sermon or this passage. But here's why it's an important topic, and here's why the author of the book of Hebrews spends so many chapters dwelling on this topic. If you're going to explore the Christian faith at all, if you're going to explore the Christian faith, there is no escaping the cross. You can't come to Christ around the cross, but only through the cross Now, to be fair, you don't have to rush to this part. And even today, if you leave with more questions and need more time to figure out, that's okay. You can learn a great deal about Jesus, but you will never fully comprehend who he is and what he came to do until you comprehend him crucified. Which is why later in his ministry, St. Paul resolved to only preach Christ and him crucified because to know Christ is to know him crucified. This is the crux of the Christian faith. But this is a fundamentally offensive image, isn't it? Because it's grotesque, it's bloody, and it can be confusing. You know, for some of you, it's hard enough to accept the idea that there might be a God. Some of you, that's the question you're asking right now. And it's a good question, and I'm glad you're asking it. For others, maybe you're saying, okay, maybe there's a God, but accepting that he's a triune God, three persons in one. Okay, like that's a big leap already. But to say that this God, who is love, sent his son into the world for the purpose of being crucified, that's another big leap. Why would God plan such a thing? So here's the question we must ask of this difficult passage this morning. Why did our mediation with God require a cross? Why did our mediation with God require a cross? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't own a Bible, take one of the Gray Church Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, Everything will also be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Someone once asked a mediator, how many mediators does it take to screw in a light bulb? The mediator responded, so what I hear you saying is that you would like the room to be brighter. You know, this epitomizes the mediator. A mediator is someone who, you know, works to help people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. They get in the middle, so to speak, and they understand both sides and try to help them find middle ground. Understandably, you might be surprised, but most mediators grow up as middle children. Uh, But I digress. Now, it's important for us to understand something about a mediator. A mediator does not exist for one party alone. You see, if you went to trial and litigation, you would have a lawyer, and your lawyer would only represent you, and it would be unethical for the lawyer to engage with the other party directly. He has to engage through the other lawyer. But if you want to avoid trial and litigation and want to try to find agreement some other way, you get a mediator, and the mediator, unlike a lawyer, represents both parties. A mediator works to understand both sides and seeks to find common ground. Our passage begins, therefore, which reminds us that we're in the middle of a developing thought, So, in light of Jesus being our great and faithful high priest, which the author's been speaking about for two whole chapters, in light of this, Jesus entered into the very presence of God. And his blood has cleansed us so that we can serve the living God. So he said all of that, and now he says, therefore, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. High priests, their work in ancient Israel was as mediators to some degree. They were the mediators of the covenant, which is essentially a contract. The covenant was the terms and the conditions that God gave to his people to help them learn to live as his people within the world. And so the high priests helped mediate those terms and conditions, helped with the festivals, helped people make sacrifices, and once a year made these sacrifices that washed away sins for the year. Jesus mediates, though, a new covenant. Well, why was a new covenant necessary at all? There was an old covenant with all of its own mediators. He mediates a new covenant because the old wasn't working, not for God and not for his people and not for the world. You see, if God took ancient Israel to court, so to speak, If they went to trial and faced up to the terms and conditions of their covenant, they would be in breach of contract. Because time and time again throughout history, they failed to uphold their side of the deal. From day one, they broke it. They couldn't even keep the covenant for a couple hours. But what we cannot lose sight of, and this is important don't lose sight of this, is that God's desire to be with us runs so deeply that he promises a new covenant even when the covenant isn't working. And this is why he sends his son into the world. God initiated the mediation. God wants to avoid trial. God initiated the mediation. Look at verse 15 once again. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance is the promises of this new covenant. And these promises, however, they're not just for Israel, they're not just for ancient Israel, they're for all who are called. The scope of God's calling has expanded. It's increased so that Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, anyone who hears this call and responds to this call can have the promised inheritance. This new covenant is infinitely bigger in scope than the first. You see, Israel, they were always meant to be a light To the nations. They were meant to be a light that drew the entire world into relationship with God. And when they broke the covenant time and time again, they failed to be that light to the world. But rather than get rid of his people, God became one of his people. God fulfilled the purpose of Israel in his son. Jesus became that light to the nations that will draw all of the nations into the love of God. This is the new covenant. Now, you might recall, if you've been at St. Peter's before, that the authors already meditated on this promise of the new covenant in chapter 8, and we went into it in depth. But as a refresher, God promised through the prophet Jeremiah long ago, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. These promises are so fundamental to what Jesus has opened up for us that the author is going to return to them again in the very next chapter. It's going to get a whole nother chapter. It's not enough to reflect on the goodness of these promises just once in the letter. But for now, What we must dwell on is how Jesus' death established this new covenant. Jesus' death established this new reality, or in the author's word, uh, Jesus' death opened up the eternal inheritance. If we read verse 15 in its entirety, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus as the mediator, understanding both sides as fully God, understanding God's desires and will in a way we cannot comprehend, but also fully human, sympathizing with us in our weakness, understanding our needs and desires. Jesus as our mediator, understanding everything, essentially said, this is it. This is the only way mediation is going to happen, if I die. His death was a mediating death. It's how a new and freeing and liberating and life-giving relationship with God could be opened up, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And the problem we discover that Jesus needed to mediate, according to verse 15, is transgressions. Transgression is a more forceful word than sin because it emphasizes not just accidents or things left undone or not knowing better. It's not just missing the mark. Transgressions are intentional sins. Transgressions is knowing better and doing it anyways. It's knowing what needs to be done and leaving it undone. It's no mere accident but purposeful recklessness. It's not even bothering with the mark to begin with. Transgressions are deliberate overstepping of boundaries and not just any boundaries, God's boundaries. It's gossiping despite having the conviction that you should keep your mouth shut. It's neglecting to provide care for someone because you don't want to be bothered or because it's inconvenient or more simply because you simply don't like them. It's indulging in pornography again and again and again. It's stealing what isn't yours and justifying it somehow. It's lying, even white lies, to save face. And on and on I could go. And today, today we make light of all of these things. The problem with religion, according to some, is that it takes minor matters and makes them into major matters. It becomes obsessed, almost pathologically so, with little sins. You know, to be fair, most of us could understand serious consequences for serious offenses. Genocide, murder, rape, major cases of fraud. These things need justice. These things need appropriate punishment. No one's going to argue that. We've been watching society nod its head with approval and in agreement over the consequences being met out to men who are being exposed in the Me Too movement. When you read about Kevin Spacey or Louis C.K., and unfortunately on and on we could go, we find it just that they've lost their careers and been ostracized. And in some cases, this still isn't enough. There still needs to be legal consequences. And if you have your own Me Too story, and many in this room do, we're here for you, to listen to you, to empower you, to walk alongside you however you need it. And you should know this is a safe place to bring that up. And if if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, uh, there's there's many other people you could talk to. Uh, You could speak to my wife, Julia. She's a mental health counselor. Uh, You could speak to Michelle Holding. She's a mental health counselor. You could speak to anyone wearing an orange name tag and they'd be happy to point you in the right direction. But this is a community that walks in truth. And so your story matters. But I've only brought up this movement to point out that we're not against consequences or punishments for major misdoings we see in the world. When something's wrong and we consider it a serious offense, yes, it needs a serious consequence. Our problem is when minor things are treated, treated with the same levity, when we say that this little thing is as bad as that big thing. Because we assess things by outward appearance. But God assesses things by inward, unseen realities. Of course, God cares what we do. Of course, he cares what we we, we do with our lives. But God is also concerned about our hearts, the motive, the affect, our inner lives that drive us to do what we do. You can't escape it. Jesus himself said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, That evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus lumps murder and arrogance together. He puts adultery and folly on the same plane transgressions, no matter what they may be, no matter what we may consider them to be, big or small, they're never a small matter to Jesus. He calls them all evils. Every single one on that list is an evil to the God of the universe. But because we're all imperfect, because we all make minor mistakes and sins, the result is that we have a compromised threshold for what we consider to be major misdoings. And we do this because we want to have some sort of moral high ground. We want to be able to stand above the people that we put in the category of bad. So their sins are worse. They're not as bad as mine. I might not be perfect, but I'm not that. That's how we establish our moral high ground. But God is perfect and he's holy and he's just. He has no imperfection, no blemish, no wrongdoing in him. So while we may think, Our transgressions are only minor. That is not how God sees it. Because we've set our standards too low. And just like the Me Too movement is disrupting a status quo that has been in certain industries allowing sexual misconduct, we need to disrupt this status quo of saying that we're fundamentally good people and that our minor mistakes don't really matter before the God of the universe. It's simply not true. You might think what you've done is inconsequential, but not to God. It's of infinite importance. It's of infinite importance. When transgressions emerge out of our lives, big or small, they come out of our hearts. And when these evils come out of us, they defile us before God. And so it's never a small thing. These things make us unfit, we're told. They make us unfit for God's presence, They separate us from being able to be in the reality of God. But our great high priest, our mediator, has redeemed us from transgressions through his death. Jesus has redeemed us from all these things. Redeemed is slavery language. Jesus paid a price to free us. This means we couldn't have freed ourselves We couldn't somehow manage our own transgressions. We couldn't pay the cost ourselves. Someone else had to pay it for us because we were enslaved. You see, if we weren't enslaved to sin, we would have complete mastery over ourselves. There would be some perfect people in this room. But we can't attain perfection because we don't have complete mastery over ourselves because we're enslaved to sin. And while this may sound harsh, and perhaps more extreme than we're inclined to see it or articulate it. I turn again to Jesus' own words from the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, which is his way of saying, listen up. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin has power over us. It owns us. It's a... It's our master. It gets to determine our future. And the future for the slaves of sin is death. In some sense, we're so accustomed to death in this world that we think that's just the outcome of a human life. You die. But death exists in this creation, not because it was creation's original aim, but because of original sin. In some sense, death is the most unnatural part of this creation. So when Jesus came down, when God sent his son to mediate a new covenant for us, he looked at us in our helpless estate, our blemishes, big and small, enslaved to sin, unfit for his presence, heading towards death. And Jesus considered God's perfection and God's Holiness and God's desire, His deep and beautiful desire to still be with us. And so Jesus offered Himself in our place as our sacrifice. And you might wonder why. Why is that the solution? Look at verse 22. The author writes this Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that? According to Hebrews here, the unchangeable principle between the old covenant and even the new covenant is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do we believe that? Take stock of your heart right now. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Do we believe that? You see, when we think about shedding blood, from our perspective, it's very violent. It's usually associated with revenge or or war or senseless atrocities. And so it's difficult for us Because we take these images that we've associated with shedding of blood, and then we put them onto God. People say, if God needs blood, that must mean he's a vengeful deity. Or if God requires the blood of his son, then he is an abuser of his own child. And these arguments have been put forward in many different ways, but they're all misled in some capacity. Because consider what the author continues to say in verses 23 through 24. It was necessary. In other words, it wasn't optional. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Let me catch you up to speed really quick on what's happening here. The Old Covenant, the tabernacle and its sacrifices, high priests, nice wardrobes, everything related to it. It all took place on earth and it was all a replica, a shadow of heavenly things. What the author is saying is everything ancient Israel did in trying to draw near to God, it was just a copy of what was to come, but it wasn't the substance of it. And if the copy on earth, if the earthly things required a sacrifice, an even better sacrifice must be required for the true things in heaven itself. It's like saying, Go-Go can have his knock-off Nikes, but Jesus needs the real thing. That's the best parallel I could come up with on the spot. <laughs> Jesus didn't enter into an earthly tent. That's the point. Jesus wasn't just concerned about earth. Jesus entered into heaven, a place none of us have the right to go, a place none of us have seen. And he entered and appeared before God's presence, or if we're going to be accurate to the Greek, it is literally to his face. Jesus appeared before the face of God on your behalf, on my behalf. He spoke to God which is why the author unashamedly and unapologetically says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is not some archaic notion from ancient religion, people. The author is making explicit and eternal principle. This is a revelation from God. This is something God made known through his son. This isn't man-made doctrine. Of course, we have to accept that statement on faith, but that is the principle driving this entire argument. But why has God set this principle in place? Why has God set a principle in place that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins? I understand that what I'm about to say uh, can be repetitive, but I don't remember most things I say, and I don't suspect you do either. So... We said this in the very last sermon that we did on Hebrews and this is a necessary repetition. All forgiveness is costly and all forgiveness is sacrificial. I want to consider something the Scottish theologian William Barclay said. There is one eternal principle which will be valid as long as the world lasts. The principle is Forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. A son or a daughter may go wrong. A father or a mother may forgive. But that forgiveness has brought tears. It has brought whiteness to the hair, lines to the face, a cutting anguish, then a long, dull ache to the heart. It did not cost nothing. There was the price of a broken heart to pay. Forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right, it doesn't matter, because forgiveness is the most costly thing in the world. Without the shedding of heart's blood, there can be no remission and forgiveness of sins. There's nothing which brings a man to his senses with such arresting violence as to see the effect of his sin on someone who loves him in this world or on the God who loves him forever and to say to himself, it costs that forgive my sin. Where there is forgiveness, someone must be crucified to the cross. It costs that to forgive our sin. If you minimize your sin, then of course the cross will appear excessive. If you think your transgressions, whatever they may be, are no big deal before the God of the universe, if there is a God, that they don't really warrant severe consequences or punishments, then of course the cross doesn't make sense. It's an absurdity. But if you change your perspective, if you listen to what Jesus himself actually said about transgressions, if you allow his death on the cross to illuminate the true cost of your sin, then you'll truly see how appalling and heart-wrenching our transgressions are then and only then will you see what the shedding of Christ's blood truly was and what it truly is. Excessive grace and mercy. Incomprehensible grace and mercy. That God loves us so much that he walked down this path when there was no other way. The forgiveness of sins requires the shedding of blood. But because God loves us as broken as we are, Rather than exact our blood, God shed his own blood. Because God loves us and desires to be with us as costly as it was to him, he opened up this way into the new covenant. But more technically, we have to say, well, how? We might understand why there was an eternal principle. But how did Christ's death actually take care of sin? Look at verses 25 through 28, the end of this chapter. Nor was it for Jesus to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus has put away sin. But this is far more revolutionary than we initially realized because the the word for put away is actually annul. Jesus has made the annulment of sin. Unlike divorce, an annulment is usually retroactive. It's to say from the very beginning, this marriage was invalid and has no bearing ever. Yet even if a marriage is annulled legally, even if the papers, the original papers of marriage are shredded and there's no evidence of the marriage to be found, it can't be undone historically. The memory still stands. And so in a way far superior than this, Jesus has annulled sin. He has made the annulment of sin. And this annulment is not bound by time. Yes, Jesus died within history, but we're told he stands before God's face as our intercessor with his own blood. He stands before God in heaven and in eternity and his blood applies to us from there. It's not bound by time. And this is why Jesus doesn't have to make his own offering again and again and again because his sacrifice was sufficient, entirely complete, totally comprehensive. The result is that sin is put away forever. It's done with. And this is part of our eternal inheritance. For anyone in Christ, you are completely and entirely forgiven. Forever. Forever. How did Jesus pull that off? Look at verse 28. Jesus offered himself once to bear the sins of many. This phrase, bear the sins of many, is word for word from Isaiah 53. Roughly 600 years before Jesus was born. 600 years before he was born. God entrusted a vision to the prophet Isaiah And Isaiah beheld a suffering servant. And of this person, 600 years before the person comes into the world, Isaiah wrote things like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Isaiah 53, 13, we read, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus bore our sins in his body. He freely allowed our transgressions to be injected into his sinless body. Although he was once entirely healthy, the virus of our misdeeds infected him. He was plagued with our iniquities. And as the author of Hebrews has already said in chapter two, verse 17, he did this to make propitiation for the sins of the people, which means he was crushed and he was wounded for the sake of bearing our curse and our judgment. He died to completely satisfy the justice of God's punishment for our transgressions. And so if you're in Christ, which means if you put your faith in him, God remembers your sins no more. In God's sight, your sin is gone. It was transferred into the body of Christ and annulled on the cross. That's your eternal inheritance. And you don't do what Jesus did for us on the cross except for love. Love is why God sent his son into the world. Love is why Christ went to the cross willingly. willingly. And this is why, as the author says, his first appearing was for this reason. He appeared to bear the sins of many. That was the whole purpose of incarnating into the world. But when he returns, the author says in verse 28, it'll be to save those who eagerly wait for him. When Jesus returns, when he appears again, it'll be to establish salvation through the ends of the earth, a new heavens and a new earth, total salvation, in God's perfect reign and rule. And that's our eternal inheritance, the everlasting kingdom of God, where there is no more sin or evil or death or suffering. But you will only come to share in this world to come if you accept Jesus as your mediator. Our mediation with God required a cross. There was no other way because there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Which means there is no other mediator between God and humanity other than the person Jesus Christ. But if you accept his mediation, or if you have, in the meantime, we live between his first appearing and his second appearing, and we're called to wait eagerly. All of this, I want you to see all of this. Everything Christ has done is fundamentally about presence. It's about God's face. It's about access to God. Do you want to see the radiance of God's love beaming from his face toward you? That's what this is about. Do you want to enjoy his love forever, world without end? That's what this is about. Do you want the joy of creation being reunited with its creator? Peace flowing through the world like a river. That's what this is about. Waiting for Christ to return then is not a license to do nothing or to do whatever we want to do because all is forgiven. Because waiting in the scriptures is active and not passive. We wait as people who have been saved and people who will be saved and people who are being saved. As we wait, we dwell with Christ through his spirit. As we wait, and this is important, we learn day by day what it means to live as a citizen of this kingdom that will come rather than in the ways of the world we're so accustomed to. As we wait, the waiting builds a hunger in our hearts to be reunited with this one who loves us so much. It builds and builds so that we long more and more to see him face to face. Because this is our eternal inheritance, access to God, the very presence of God, enjoying Christ himself forever. And so in a cultural season where we start waiting and we start hoping for better futures, or the best possible versions of ourselves, or change in the world. I want to change the question only slightly. Who are you waiting for? Who are you waiting for? What difference does that make?